Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. The love of God. It's a concept that hopefully we can appreciate, but for some, it may be difficult to truly understand. Today, First Pres Senior Pastor Dan Chun helps us understand this important characteristic of our God. So for this year, I would like our church to really focus on the character of God. I know every year I kind of do the State of the Union address, but for this one I want to just say, can we focus and think about the character of God to realize how loving and good He is? And when we truly understand His character and have the right motivation to do what He asks us to do, um, it will incredibly uh, enhance our lives. We'll have greater trust and faith in Him. We'll have less fear and anxiety in our lives. And if we believe that God is truly the perfect, loving, heavenly Father, it will revolutionize and empower our lives. So this week and next week, I'll be looking at the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Today um, is the love of God the Father, part one. And, uh, but before we delve into that, let's have another prayer. Please join me. Our Heavenly Father, please immerse us in your Holy Spirit and help us know you better and trust you more. In Christ's name, amen. So now, for the scripture reading, please stand, if you're able, as I read Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. So here's the setting of our passage. One day, Jesus is hanging out with the people whom society back then described as sinners, the riffraff, the lawbreakers, the selfish, the immoral, people like you and me. And the religious people of society, the Pharisees, the one who made the religious laws of faith and interpreted them, the ones held in high esteem during that time, are appalled by this and criticize Jesus and sneer, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You see, the Pharisees would never hang out with irreligious, immoral, unclean people. It's a harsh criticism from the Pharisees because it's saying, look at those despicable people and see how Jesus is sitting with them. 
And I'm sure the people sitting with Jesus felt hurt again. Those people probably heard all their lives of how they are sinners and they have no hope and how they're losers and they're unaccomplished and they're untouchables. They are to be criticized, ostracized, held in low, low self-esteem and, and with great distaste and distrust and disgust. It probably was not the first time religious leaders dumped on them. But then comes Jesus, a respectable rabbi who hangs out with them and drinks and eats with them. But he's a rabbi. Why does he choose to hang out with losers instead of like the head of the Hawaii Chamber of Commerce or the Hawaii Business Table or the governor or the mayor? Inconceivable. The world says if you're going to start a movement, you're supposed to start with the influencers of society, the change makers, the movers, the shakers, the entrepreneurs. But no, Jesus goes out with the least popular people. In fact, his inner circle are not really cool people like tax collector and just fishermen or a zealot. And for you who are in school, it would be like how the most popular football captain or cheerleader or school president decides to always eat in the cafeteria with the school's social outcasts. Different. Jesus wasn't afraid to meet with the losers, but he also wasn't afraid to meet with those who claim the high moral ground either. He met with both. The people who you think you shouldn't hang around with may be the very people Jesus would want you to hang out with. But here's the main point of my sermon. God loves you so much that he will seek you out all your life, no matter what you have done right or wrong. You may have had a life of being on the outside because you were told you were different or not as smart uh, or as athletic or as verbal as others, or maybe because of your race or social status or orientation or gender or because you are a stranger in a foreign land. Hear today that Jesus loves you very, very much. He will never leave you, never forsake you. And get this, God the Father wants to adopt you into his family. And this is the essence of God, God's character. He is love. You're not an outsider of his ohana, his family. He wants a direct, intimate, personal relationship with you as a son or daughter. I've told you that sometimes friends say to me, we can't come to your church, Dan, because lightning would strike us. We don't fit. We're not moral like the rest of you. And they know in their hearts they have failed in some way as moral people. And they do things that might not be legitimate, um, might not be looked upon as good. So they think they don't fit with the rest of the church people who at times they call hypocrites. But I tell them, hypocrites, guilty as charged. Church people are hypocrites. Um, because, um, and I also tell them that to be a hypocrite is kind of the ad admission to church. We hopefully all admit we're not always consistent and we all are not super moral and we blow it all the time, but we're trying to be better. Hence, the two parables I'm going to talk about today and the parable of the prodigal son for next week are super critical for us to understand. 
In the first parable, Jesus asks, if you own 100 sheep and you lose one, won't you leave the 99 and go looking for the lost one? Jesus is talking to people who know about sheep herding, and they may have laughed at him at this point because no one leaves 99 sheep and go looking for one wayward sheep. I mean, that's crazy. And Jesus said the shepherd doesn't just leave the 99, but that he leaves them in the open country, the open country, where there could be lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. I think Jesus wanted them to laugh because he's making the point. He's saying, right, that is how you all would respond, saying that's crazy. But he said, let me tell you something even more crazy. This is the love of the heavenly father. You may not leave 99 to find one, but God will if you are the lost one. He'll do anything to find a lost person. No one can be too lost that they cannot be found. Like the children's book, character runaway um, bunny you can't run away from God's love he will look for you and when he finds you and you allow yourself to be found he will joyfully did you notice the word in the Bible verse we read joyfully he will put you on his shoulders he joyfully carries you he doesn't hit you to punish you for running away he doesn't make you walk back as he kind of prods you with his shepherd stick and, and talks down at you with stern words. No, he carries you. He carries you, and the word is, with great joy. That's the character of God. He will look for you, the lost sheep, and chase you with his love. Now, many of you have your own testimony of how God found you when you were at your lowest. During Christmas Advent, uh, we heard four testimonies last December here at First Press. Testimonies of Diane, who lost her husband, and Blaine, who lost his wife, and Aaron, who struggled with addiction, and Jericho, who was at the point of death but was healed, but then his father passed away days um, um, before Christmas. But God was there for them through it all. God found them in their despair and struggles. Diane, Blaine, Aaron, Jericho know today that God joyfully put them on his shoulders to carry them. And they wanted you to know that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He drills down deeper to really get this love of the Heavenly Father who searches for us. So in case his listeners may have been as dense as you and I can be, he then tells them another parable. So suppose a woman has 10 silver coins, loses one. So she searches and searches for that one coin. She lights a lamp uses up her precious oil, sweets the house, and searches until she finds it. And when she does, she calls all her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. Jesus says, In the same way, in the same way, I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Have you ever lost something of great value? I once was um, given tickets to a U2 concert at Aloha Stadium. Uh, U2, like my favorite current rock and roll band. Uh, U2, whose leader, Bono, is a devout Christian, as well as his uh, colleague, uh, The Edge, who's on the left, Edge. Um, I, 
I put the U2 tickets in a tin box uh, and closed it with other papers and didn't think about it for weeks. I was so excited. U2, in person. I hadn't been to a concert for ages. A few days before the con- concert, I thought I would just take a look to make sure they were in the box. Crazy, but I don't know if you ever do that when you're just like, have something so valuable, you know, like, oh, well, at least I do it. I want to take a look again. So I raised the cover of the tin box, and they were gone. No tickets. I panicked. I was going with others. I promised them I would take them to U2, but at that point, forget them. I want to go to U2. I got to find at least one ticket. And so I looked all over the desk to see if I had left them out, and I couldn't find them. I lifted up again. No, it's not there. I put it down. I interrogated my family more stringently than the NCIS and Law and Order. No, no one had taken them. No one had seen them. I lifted the cupboard again, looked through all the contents of the tin box again. I had papers in there. I brought the papers out, flattened them out, see if they got stuck in between. Did I misplace them? All over the room I looked. The woman had a lamp. I had a flashlight looking underneath tables and beds and everything. Couldn't find it. No bono meant I was going bozo. (laughs) Time was running out. Maybe a day to go. No tickets. I prayed fervently. Couldn't find it. And then I went back to the tin box for the umpteenth time. I lifted the cover, and lo and behold, my tickets were stuck on the inside of the cover. (laughs) How did that happen? They were in an envelope, and somehow got stuck within the edge, the inner edge around it. I tried to do it again. I couldn't even get it back in, but I purposely tried to do it. The right speed, the right angle, I couldn't do it. But there it was stuck. And boy, did I rejoice. I shouted. I praised God. I was so happy. And somehow, it was there. Now, every time I read this Bible passage, I think of those tickets. It wasn't a lost coin. It was my lost tickets. Now, I know that, how that woman must have panicked. It was a tenth of her money. I know how she must have rejoiced when she found it. And that is how God is with us. He, he, he will always search for us and try to reach out to us, no matter how deep the hole is of our feeling loss, maybe due to depression or a financial issue or uh, illness or addiction or injury or injustice that you're fighting. He is the epitome of no one left behind. And it's because he loves us. Remember those uh, 12 boys uh, and their coach on a soccer team Uh, who were trapped in an underground cave in Thailand. And remember how so many from around the world, the British, the Australians, the Americans, and others, sprung into action with the Thai government to rescue the boys and the coach. 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, people digging all around the ground to pump out literally a billion liters of water, trying to drain the caves to get to them. More than 700 diving cylinders. Two Thai Navy SEALs actually died uh, while trying to save them, one after and one before. People praying, people in command centers. Now think of this. If imperfect, sinful people can spring into action to save those in need, surely God who created us has that in his heart. He put that kind of love in our hearts. He is greater and more noble than humans But as Jesus said, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good gifts to those who ask him? It is God's nature to save you, to search for you, rescue. His love for you is so immense, and he rejoices when he finds you. And the lesson today, that you cannot have sinned enough that his love can't reach you. He wants you as his son or daughter. So let me close with a true story of God seeking us from the book, The Case for Grace by Lee Strobel, who's a friend of this church. It's a story of Stephanie Fast who was born in the 1950s in South Korea out of wedlock to her Korean mom and her Caucasian father who was an American soldier who later abandoned Stephanie and her mom. When Stephanie was three or four, she remembers her mom and grandparents were having a horrible argument about a choice her mom had to make. And um, after the Korean War, uh, you may not know this, but biracial children were not accepted. And on that night of argument, her mom was given the option of marriage to a Korean man, but she cannot keep her biracial daughter. Stephanie was the outcast of society. She looked different. Her hair and skin color was lighter. She had actually wild, curly hair. Her mom made a decision. She told Stephanie that she was going to her uncle's home. A few days later, they went to a train station. They got on the train. Her mom gave her a satchel with a lunch and a couple extra sets of clothing. She then turned to her about three-year-old Stephanie and said, don't be afraid. She said she should get off the train at the next stop with the other people, and her uncle would meet her, and then she left her on that train. When Stephanie got to her stop and got off, she said, no one came for me. Her first thought was, I'll stand here on the platform and my uncle will come for me. Nightfall came. A train master saw her and asked what she was doing. She said she was waiting for her uncle. And the train master then called her a Korean word, which is like the N-word today, meaning half-breed or child of two bloods. But it also means garbage, dust, bastard, alien devil. And to this day, Stephanie can't remember the name her mom gave her. The train master made her leave, and she found an ox cart and crawled in there for her first night, putting straw around her and ate the one meal her mom gave her. Today, Stephanie would say that it wasn't uncommon for mothers to abandon their children, especially if they were biracial due to the harassment and stigma. They often left the children at train stations or other public areas, and we see that in other poor countries, in China and other places. It's amazing that little Stephanie at that train station survived. I mean, she would be on her own for two or three years before she found other street kids she could be with. How in the world did she survive at age three or four? She said, only the Lord, I think. She wandered into the countryside and, and said there she could steal whatever she wanted. There were fruit and vegetable and rice fields. As long as she didn't get caught, she could eat. She said she ate locusts and grasshoppers and even field mice because she was so hungry. Winter made it worse, cold, no food. She found a foxhole to live in and put, again, straw on her to keep warm. 
Now and then a kind woman would leave her kitchen door open for her and she would curl up on the dirt floor by the stove and stay warm. And they were answers to prayers for she would be shivering at night in that foxhole. But it wasn't just the hunger and physical elements. Other children would taunt her for being biracial. Farmers would yell at her for stealing. To everyone, she was that horrible Korean N-word. She was assaulted and raped. She said, when you're little, you hear people call you that bad word day after day after day, and you believe it, and that they could do anything they wanted to you because you weren't a person. She said, I was worthless. I was dirty. I was unclean. I had no name. I had no identity. I had no family. I had no future, no hope. Over time, I began to hate myself. Farmers who caught her stealing, instead of helping a little kid, tortured her. But she was always saved by some kind person who found her after being thrown into a well or tied to a water wheel by adults who wanted her to drown. One day, she was thrown into a building full of gutter rats, and she screamed until she lost consciousness. But then her next memory is that she woke up and she saw these two blue eyes staring at her. It was a woman. The woman's name was Iris Erickson, a world vision nurse from Sweden. And her job was to rescue babies from the street. But Stephanie wasn't a baby anymore. She was seven years old. Iris's task was to only save babies because they were more likely to survive and more likely to get adopted and less likely to have behavioral issues. So Iris turned away and leaving Stephanie there. But she said for some reason her legs got heavier and heavier and heavier and she couldn't walk. And then Iris said she heard an audible voice say in Swedish, her native language, two words. And they were, she's mine. But there was no one around. She thought, who said that? Iris later said, it must have been God. She knew she had to respond and obey him. So Iris picked up Stephanie, took her to her clinic, and Stephanie stayed there for a few weeks, and then she was healthy enough to be transferred to a World Vision orphanage in the city. Because she was older, Stephanie helped care for the babies, which she liked to do. She did that for two years. And then one day, when she was nine years old, she said a huge man came and picked up a baby and put the baby's baby right next to his cheek. And he kissed the baby, talked to him, put him down, then got another baby and did the same thing, holding, hugging a, a baby, kissing the child. And then the man turned to Stephanie. Stephanie had a, a lazy eye. She had dirt on her body. She had lice on her head. She had worms in her stomach. She weighed less than 30 pounds. But he approached her anyway. And all so softly and tenderly, he put his hands to cover her head and started to stroke her face. She said she was spellbound. Her eyes teared up. She thought, maybe, maybe this is the love of a father. She so much wanted to be caressed 
by him again, but then she did something that shocked even herself. She yanked his hand off of her face and looked him in the eye, and she spit on him twice. And then she ran away and hid in a closet. The next day, she was called into the director's office, and she was thinking, oh, I am in trouble now. I'm going to get punished. And she walked in, and there's that same man sitting there with his wife, this foreign couple. And she thought, oh, they're going to beat the tar out of me. And then an interpreter said to her, pointing to the man and woman sitting there, they want to take you to their house. How could this be? They could have chosen a more easygoing or compliant child, but this missionary couple said, this is the child we want. And Stephanie thought she was going to become their servant. She didn't know what adoption meant, for in Korean, when a poor child attained a certain age, they would be sold as a servant to rich people. She could envision that. She could pay off their kindness by being a good servant, and that way she could earn her room and board. They gave her the name Stephanie. Their house in Korea was modest by Western standards, but seemed so big to her. They cleaned her up, gave her antibiotics. They kept feeding her and actually tucking her into bed at night and buying her new clothes, and they didn't put her to work. And for several months, she was really confused, but she didn't want to bring it up to them. When she would go into the village with them, they, she wasn't treated like that Korean N-word. Instead, she was treated like a princess. And then one day, a girl said to her, you smell like an American. And Stephanie said, no, I'm not. It's just that they haven't put me to work yet, but they're treating me real nice. And the girl said, don't you realize that you're their daughter? No, I'm not, said Stephanie. And the friend said, yes, you are. You are their daughter. Stephanie ran back to her house and up the hill toward the home and thinking that that, that, that is why no one's beating me, maybe. I'm their daughter. She ran into the house and shouted in Korean, I'm your daughter. Now, her mom didn't speak Korean, but a worker there told her mom what she was saying, and with big tears running down her face, she nodded and said, Yes, Stephanie, you're my daughter. And Stephanie was stunned. One day, they were at a beach in Korea, and her daddy asked if she wanted to be baptized. She said, sure, let's do it right now in the ocean. And so her daddy baptized her. Later, they moved to a small town in Indiana, and her dad became a pastor, and she tried to deny her Korean heritage. She was the only Asian in high school. She wanted to be the perfect American girl. She was a homecoming queen. She won the citizenship award. And yet every night she'd go to bed scared that she would be discovered and lose her parents' love. When she was almost 17, she became sullen and withdrawn. And her, and her mom tried to gently confront her, but she went off to her bedroom and she shut the door and looked in the mirror and she felt she was still a pile of trash. She crawled under the covers of her bed. And a little while later, her dad opened the door and softly said, Stephanie, and then sat on the bed next to her. And he said, your mother and I want you to know that we love you very much but you have a hard time 
accepting that love. The time has come for us to release you to God. Stephanie, can I share with you about Jesus? Stephanie said, until that moment, I only saw Jesus as the Son of God. I knew he had come down to earth, but that night, for the very first time, it dawned on me, Jesus understands me. He walked in my shoes. He was sort of an N-word back then. His daddy, his earthly father, wasn't his real daddy. And he, too, slept in straw as a child. He was ridiculed and abused. They chased him and tried to kill him. And she said, it was dawning on me, oh, that's what daddy means when he says, Jesus understands me. And after her dad left, she said a prayer. And admittedly, she said, not a nice prayer. She said, God, if you're what mom and dad say you are, then do something and do it right now. And he did. Stephanie began to cry. She hadn't cried in years, hadn't been able to. She started to wail, and her parents came into the room, and they didn't say anything. They just snuggled with her and held her feet in her hands, and they prayed silently to the Lord. And then Stephanie said, it came as kind of a supernatural intervention. She said, suddenly it just came to me, Jesus knows me, and he still loves me. He knows all my shame, all my guilt. He knows all my fears. He knows all my loneliness, and yet he still loves me. And she said, I've never been the same since. She said, I hated myself for so long. The fact that I could finally look into the mirror and love myself was nothing less than a miracle. It was God's grace. So these days... I have a phrase that I use, she said. And I quote her. It's an incredible statement. She says this. For me, I can honestly say there is no event in my life that I'm better without. Is that crazy? Why? Because everything in my life brought me to Jesus. Today, Stephanie lives in the Pacific Northwest and counsels a lot of abused women. She said, the Bible talks about orphans, but sometimes it uses the word fatherless. It sounds like your father protected you and provided for you. Believe me, that's good. You should be grateful for that, as I'm sure you are, but still a person can be an orphan of the heart. And that's where God can provide. That's where grace can come in. As the psalm says, Thou, God, are the helper of the fatherless. Psalm 10, 14. J.I. Packer wrote one of my favorite books called Knowing God. And it has these amazing few sentences that I wanted to throw in here to really put it in context. And his, his, here's what he wrote. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook in life, it means that he does not understand 
Christianity very well at all. Wow. This might be a new day in our lives. Today may be the day that we see the perfect Heavenly Father that we've always wanted, even though we may have had an imperfect human father. For Stephanie, twice she was adopted by humans and by God, and both times Lee Strobel would say she was ambushed by grace. This is the character of God I want to proclaim today and even more so next week. His character is not that of a... Um, is that of a, of a kind, loving father and mother, as in this story. Some of you, I know, may have had a hard time with parents. Some of you may have been abused by them. But in God's grace, I pray that you will accept the love of our Heavenly Father, who is perfect compared to humans. And that is Jesus' desire for you. Remember that Jesus said... Jesus, who is God, said, No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. Because you are adopted as God's children. And I think too often we operate in our service and our ministry as, i got to do this because I'm his servant. But he's trying to say, You're a friend and your son and daughter adopted by God. For as it says in the book of Romans, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are servants? No, children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are heirs in fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. So God did the ultimate sacrifice for his lost children. He gave up his son, Jesus, who died on a cross for you. For all the times you have spit in his face or in the face of others, he wanted to still find you. And that's why Jesus loved to hang out with sinners because they would be the ones humble enough to know that they need him and he would accept them with open arms. It's the greatest expression of love when God himself gets on a cross for those who spit on him and stab him and whip him and punch him, that he would die for them, that they might know the caress and hug of the Lord. It's the ultimate for a shepherd trying to find his lost sheep. Now, there may be some here today who want to know this heavenly father who is this kind, loving, perfect father we've all wanted. And in humility, maybe in the past, you have spit in his eye and rejected him, been disobedient, but he still seeks you. And every day of your life, he will love you no matter what you do. Jesus says, the father and I are one. And as we accept Jesus Christ, we know God the father. And so I ask now, would some of you want to pray like Stephanie to accept Jesus and follow God for the rest of your life that you might bask in his love and grace and mercy? Stephanie said, okay, I'm praying it right now. I'm getting baptized right now. I'll do it right now, God. 
And maybe this will be the day that some of you, for the first time, dedicate your lives or recommit your lives to a heavenly father and not a disciplinarian or something like that. A father who's been seeking you all this time. So let's pray as the worship team comes up. Lord, I think there are some here who know, because there's been sitting here, it's time to make a decision. And I pray, Lord, that there are some here who might say a simple prayer of, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to know you as Father. I may have been on the fence, or maybe I've spit in your eye with some of the things I've done. But I want to come home. I want to come home to my Father and experience the Father's love. You've been so faithful to me. I want to fully acknowledge I've been adopted by you and trust you and follow you for the rest of my life. If there are those here who would just want to say that prayer, if you could just, with heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just raise your hands and just say, okay, by doing that you're saying I'm in. I want to commit my life to you, Lord. Or maybe recommit. Okay, you can put your hands down. Lord, thank you. You know our hearts. You know our needs. And we know you love us. So thank you. In Christ's name, amen. I wanted to add one more thing. So much of our faith is action, and it was an action of Stephanie to get baptized. It was an action of Stephanie to really say that prayer. And prayer is really important. As prayer... Prayer is important to do it with somebody, as Stephanie did that with her parents. And so as we sing this last song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, um, and then a song about the Lord's reckless, wonderful love, as we stand here and sing this, if you would like prayer with someone, the prayer team and the staff will be up here front and come up during that song. And we really want to seal some of the decisions you made today of your commitment to Christ and your accepting God's love. Before I give the final uh, blessing, again, I want to remind you that if you do want prayer, the prayer team will be in front of the cross, in front of the uh, choir risers, and here in front of the stage. And they would love to pray with you for whatever your concern might be. But now for everyone, please receive this uh, blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and his countenance be upon you. And may you know deep in your heart the wonderful love of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. May you know he's a God who seeks after you always. In Christ's name, amen. God bless. There's nothing we can do to escape the love of God. His love is constant, enveloping, and unconditional. It's on us to receive and bask in it. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Press website, fbchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45-550 Kionaoli Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11.11 a.m. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. If you need more info, call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, this is Roselia Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thanks for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2020, produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.